and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Um, and so if you turn in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 8, and then I also encourage that you use the handout that I, that I have printed out. Um, I think I managed to make it free of typos or errors. You, you're going to find some, trust me. Um, I do my very best on that, but I t- tend to miss a couple here and there. Um, but uh, what, we're here, what we're at here in Revelation chapter 8 is God's righteous judgment revealed. Okay, so we're going to see this in, in three parts. We're going to look at the first of the... Uh, First of the four trumpet judgments that are in the book of Revelation. Uh, If you haven't been with us for the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 1 verse 19 sort of gives us an outline for the book. Uh, Jesus tells the apostle John, he says, Write therefore, or therefore write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. And so you get an outline. So John shares the, the truth of the gospel about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then you have the letters to the seven churches, which were the, the what is part of that for John, the current state of the church that John was looking at. Um, and then the things that will take place after this, we look at the book of Revelation and see the events that are happening in these chapters as future events. The other thing that I've shared with you is there's different theological approaches to the book of Revelation. I'm going to share this in a sense of these being future events that we have yet to see take place. That said, there are other views where they saw that all of these events happening within the first 200 years uh, of the church. And then there's another view that says that these are things that are happening in a spiritual sense and they're cyclical throughout the church history. So there's different views on this. You may hold a different view than me. My point in sharing this is that uh, I want us to, to, to come together on this. I actually was sharing my view last week. I talked about the 144,000 and the, that being uh, literally 144,000 Jewish people that uh, God seals during the tribulation period for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. And a friend of mine that's an amillennialist uh, viewpoint that comes here, he said, really? Literally? 144,000? You're like, like, why? And then he explained his view to me. And so, uh, th- I just want you to know, there's, there's different ways to read this. There's different ways to look at it. The big point in all of this is that we understand that God is in control of history. That there are things that, uh, when you read the, the book of Revelation, there are things that it should cause you to go, um, wow, I'm so thankful that God has saved me. As a Christian, you should go, I'm so thankful that God has saved me, that these judgments are not something, God's wrath is not something that I'm going to experience because Christ took that for me on the cross. Um, and I think there's also uh, an idea of because I'm thankful and because I'm changed, I'm going to live differently. I think definitely prophecy should make us think, I want to live in line with what God has revealed to be true and who he wants me to be. And then the, the other part of it would be, I want to proclaim this good news of what Jesus has done so that you won't experience God's wrath, so that you would be saved from that, so that you would be in right relationship with God because we care about you and the church is here to proclaim the message of Jesus saving us from sin and giving us new life. And so uh, I think that's an important thing for us to understand as we as we read this. Um, that said, I am going to, I'm going to mostly offer the future events viewpoint on this. Every once in a while, I will say something like, if you view this metaphorically, it could mean this. Um, and so I'll include some of that as we go through. 
Um, and so if you look at your hand out there, the hermeneutical approach, hermeneutics is a way of talking about the study, the science, uh, the art of studying an ancient document, in particular here, the, uh, the Bible. And so when reading a book of prophecy written from a strong Jewish perspective, we must inspect language, history, and culture for understanding. And we always do that. What, what's, the, what's the Greek that he wrote this letter in really mean? Because we lose some things when we move to English. Um, what was the history of the time? What sort of cultural things were going on uh, that, that John understood that maybe we don't. The other thing here, and you may have never heard of this, we also look to the theory of expositional constancy. And that means that the Holy Spirit tends to use metaphors and idioms in a consistent manner. So if he used it, in a, if the Holy Spirit inspired a writer in the Old Testament to use a metaphor in an, or an idiom to mean something, he will, he will typically use it the same way as he inspires writers moving forward. Okay, So we're going to see a lot of that with the way that John uh, is talking. He's going to talk in the same way that an idiom or a metaphor was used in the Old Testament. He's using it the same way here in the book of Revelation. So we're going to gain most of our insight from what's being said and pictured from Old Testament writings. Uh, we will also see that this passage in particular mirrors the seven plagues, or excuse me, the ten plagues of Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 through 11, and it uses a lot of Hebrew or Hebraic images that the Apostle John and his readers would understand. And so what I mean by that, there'd be figures of speech, like we might say, the cat's out of the bag, and you know what I mean. Um, but if you said that to John, he might go, what are you talking about? Or if you said it to Amelia Bedelia, she'd be really confused, right? Um, but so there's things that that are meant to have imagery that means something else that maybe we don't understand that they're saying, okay? And so there's some of that going on in these passages as well. Um, as always, we seek to understand what the original writer intended his original reader to know. That's always the goal. What, what was God communicating through John to John's original audience? And then once we understand that truth, we can, can then apply that truth to our daily lives under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So that's how we want to read the Bible, okay? Uh, the other thing, if maybe you're here and, and Christianity is kind of a new thing for you, I will tell you that we take the Bible very seriously. Uh, it is God's word that was given to us so that we can understand who he is. We can understand our relationship with him. We can understand the problem of sin. We can understand the solution to sin. We can know how we can have right relationship with God. Um, and so this is this is really, really important that we, hold, we have a high view of scripture. Uh, we see it as God's way of communicating to us. One of his primary ways, uh, the, the major way was through his son Jesus, but it's, it's a major way that God communicates with us is through the Bible, okay? And so we have a high view. Now, uh, this, this particular passage, as we get into Revelation chapter 8, uh, there have been, there've been the seven seals that, that Jesus has opened. And so Jesus takes this document, and John sees it, and he's, he's just he's, he's weeping because they can't find anyone that's capable of opening it. And then it's given to Jesus, and we understand that he has the ability to open this document. And this document that he holds, this, uh, this scroll with the seven seals, it's written on the front and on the back. And because it's written on the back, we know from ancient history that the documents that they wrote on the back of were title deeds. And so Jesus is holding a title deed and the title deed that he's holding is the ability to judge sin and to cause God's final plan to come to fruition. And so that's what he's opening as we go through this. And so he opens the seals and there's different things that are drawn out to us about God's wrath and judgment of sin. And then he's going to open the seventh seal here and these, these se the seventh seal actually contains all of the seven trumpet judgments. And these trumpet judgments are... God 
God's wrath being poured out on the earth uh, for the purpose of judging sin. And when we talk about you know, that word wrath, it's God's hatred of sin. And you go, wow, why does God hate sin? Well, God hates sin because his design is best. And when we go outside of his design, inevitably what we do is we say, God, we know better than you. So God no longer becomes our God, but instead just something that's sort of on the side. And, and then we determine what's right and what's wrong. And when we do that, we inevitably cause harm to other people. So anything that you've ever experienced that's been negative, anything, sickness, disease, uh, negative interactions with other people, negative political situations, like so on and so forth, anything negative that you've experienced in your life, it's a result of sin because it's outside of God's design. He did not design it to be this way. And so that's why God has hatred towards sin. That's why he judges it. Okay. Now, the other thing that we know about God is that he longs for us to come to repentance. He longs for each and every one of us to look at our own lives and say, God, I have been walking away from you, determining what's right and wrong based upon either cultural standards or my own standards, or I've just kind of been doing what everybody else is doing. And so I've been walking away from you. And so what I'm going to do, God, as you've shown me your grace, as your, your riches and your kindness are revealed to me, I'm actually going to turn away from doing that. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to change my mind, and instead of walking away from you and determining what's right and wrong for myself, I'm going to come back to you, God, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that your son Jesus has paid for the time that I walked away from you. I'm going to trust that his death on the cross wiped out my sin once and for all, and that you made me a new creation. I'm no longer in fear of you, God, but now I'm your child, and I come to you as a child seeking your guidance and wisdom. And not only that, God then gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can walk in a new way of life. He gives us a new identity. He indwells us. He completely changes us. And so God's kindness is given to us. It's shown to us so that we would repent and come to a knowledge of salvation and trust him. That's what those verses in Romans chapter 2 on your handout talk about. It says, do, do you despise the ridges of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance or a change of your mind and a new way of life? Because... Uh, of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. And so when we, re when we continue to reject Christ and walk on our, in our own strength and in our own ways, apart from Him, outside of His salvation, we're actually living a life that's storing up. He says we're storing up wrath. We're storing up a time when we will experience the weight of our sin on our shoulders. But God doesn't want us to experience that. And so He gives us His Son Jesus to take that that away. He gives us his son Jesus to take our place. And so that's what we're going to look at is this time and place when God's judgment is um, poured out on the earth. Um, and now, from the approach that I'm sharing with you, this future approach, one of the other things that we believe is that the church is actually raptured or taken up, called up to Christ, uh, and not a part of this time of wrath. We believe that Christians in the current church age experience persecution, but we don't experience God's wrath because we're saved from God's wrath. And so God calls us, uh, and, he, and at Jesus' second coming, or not before, but before his second coming, he raptures us, he calls the church away, and we don't experience this time of wrath. Again, there's different views on that. Um, but that's, that's kind of the understanding that I'm going to share with you. So, with all of that background, I just spent 13 of my 35 minutes on that. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll get to this passage. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you have saved us from the consequences of our sin, uh, that the life that I lived apart from you and in my own strength, according to my own wisdom, it just resulted in, well, it didn't result in anything very good. And so I thank you that you've saved me from that. 
that uh, your son Jesus' blood on the cross was sufficient to take away the consequences of my sin and that his resurrection from the dead has brought me new life. I, I thank you that you've done that for so many people here this morning. And I do pray for those that have yet to repent, that have yet to change the way of uh, the direction of their life, that they would turn to you this morning and trust in your son Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1 of chapter 8, he's opening this final seal, and it says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. So that half an hour is intended to either be literal or express a short period of time. Um, We know that from the Old Testament passages I've listed there, Isaiah 41, Amos chapter 8, that judgment and condemnation are very serious, and that God called for silence before his judgment of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, If you've ever been in a courtroom, maybe you've been in a courtroom and a sentence for a person was about to be pronounced, you know that silence precedes the reading of that judgment. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you're getting ready to say, here's here's the charges, you're found guilty, and here's the consequences and the the payment that you're going to have to make because of the wrongdoing that you've taken, uh, you know that silence precedes that. When the weight of wrongdoing and sin is cast on the shoulders of the guilty, it's both solemn and worrisome for the guilty. The guilty party, there's a, there's, a, there's a point where they go, I am guilty. I'm going to take the consequences of what I've done. And it would be a, a time where they feel burden, weight, and worry because of the, the consequences of what they've done. It's a time of justice for injured parties. Uh, we actually see in Revelation chapter 6 that there's a group of saints that they call out to God and they say, How long, O Lord, will you wait until you come and judge? And so if you've, maybe you've been injured by somebody in your life and you, or, or you were injured or somebody that you know and love was injured and you go to the courtroom and the sentence is pronounced for the person that has caused that harm to you or your family, there, there's a sense of justice for the injured party. From God's perspective, it's an occasion that he made every effort to forgive and pardon. You have to understand this, that God has made every effort to forgive and pardon you and I as far as our judgment before him is concerned. And so his son Jesus, he took the full weight of sin on the cross as our scapegoat so that the sentencing of sin could be carried out on him rather than us. To understand that that's what Jesus has done. When he went to the cross, he died for our sin and for us as sinners. He died as a scapegoat so that we would not experience God's wrath. Jesus went to the cross. When he went to the cross, he was silent. Uh, Isaiah chapter chapter 53 talks about that. And when Jesus was on the cross, he was silent except to offer forgiveness to others, to care for his mother, and to express the anguish of dying with the weight of sin upon him. His disciples were silent. God the Father was silent as Christ died. The Father could have sounded his voice from heaven as he did at Jesus' baptism or in the temple to vindicate Jesus, to say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But he didn't. He remained quiet. During Jesus' substitutionary death, the Father was silent. Vindication would come three days later when Jesus rose from the dead. And so we remember that Jesus died not only for our sins and for us as a sinner, but he rose from death three days later as a demonstration of his power over sin and death and his power over our future. 
to understand this. So when Jesus rose from the dead, it vindicated him as Christ, as God, as the Savior. Uh, but it also demonstrated his power over sin and death and my future, your future. He is the one who holds the right. Right When we got into the book of, uh, of Revelation here, it says that he holds the keys to death and Hades. Uh, that that the, the judgment of all humanity is going to be something that Christ exercises. And he's either going to uh, cause us to carry the weight of our own sin or we'll recognize him as our Savior and that he has carried the weight of our sin. It'll be one or the other. And so he has rescued you and I from our sentence of death. He's redeemed us with his own life and has restored us to right standing with God by his resurrection. And I think as a Christian, you hear those words, he's rescued me from the sentence of death. He's redeemed me from, uh, from my, own, my old way of life and he's made me new. He's restored me to right standing with God by his resurrection. We should say, Amen. Like, God has done this. It's true. It's real. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has rescued me, redeemed me, and restored me to God's family. And if you've not yet said thank you to Jesus and turned your life over to his worthy hands, I wonder what you're waiting for. Maybe you think there's something in yourself that you need to clean up. That's not the gospel. There's, there's aspects of religious practices that make you think that maybe you have to clean yourself up before God would save you, but that's not grace. He saved you by his merit, not yours. And it's, it's final. Once and for all, Jesus' death on the cross. There's nothing that you could do to be saved other than trust Jesus. There's nothing that you bring to the table to make yourself right other than a sense of humility and need. And so that's how we approach Christ. And so I wonder what you're waiting for if you haven't done this yet. Jesus' death and resurrection had saved you from the terrifying moment of silence that precedes a guilty sentence before God and the wrath that follows. His death and resurrection have saved us from that terrifying moment that precedes a guilty sentence. Have you been rescued by Jesus? If you haven't, what are you waiting for? And so there's this moment of silence that should cause us to look at our own lives and say, where am I with God? Then in verse 2, Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So again, if you've never read through the Old Testament, that might sound weird. But if you've read through uh, Old Testament and you've looked at uh, the tabernacle or the temple and how worship was practiced within the tabernacle or the temple, this all sounds very much like that. Okay, and so there's this this incense and there's an altar and uh, there's a there's smoke and there's the prayers of the saints and actually Revelation has revealed that the prayers of the saints and the incense are a representative of people on earth crying out to God and saying, when, oh Lord, will you, when are you going to bring justice? When are the rights, uh, when are the wrongs going to be righted? When, when, is, when are things going to be the way that we know in our hearts they should be? And so that's what they're waiting for. Revelation 6.10 says, Then they cried out in a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? How long, Lord, until you make 
things right. We're, we're waiting. And we just, I just shared with you that the reason that God is waiting is His patience and His kindness. It's so that you and I can repent. It's so that you and I can come into a right relationship with Jesus. It's for those of us who are in Christ to then proclaim the gospel so that others can come into a right relationship with Jesus. That's what His patience and His kindness are all about. What this passage shares that at one point, sometime future, God will return. And these things will be dealt with. And so these, these people, they're crying out, those who give their life for Jesus' name's sake during the Great Tribulation, they're heard and answered with the sounding of each trumpet judgment. Each of these trumpet judgments is an answer to that prayer, God, how long will you wait until you judge the earth and avenge our blood and bring about justice? Verse 7, Then the first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth, so that a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So this first trumpet goes off, and we, we, we also understand that from verse 5, this uh, peals of thunder and rumblings and flashings of lightning and an earthquake, those were all things that were used in the Old Testament to say God is visiting. And not only is he visiting, but he's visiting to judge, okay? So judgment is happening, and then the first trumpet blows, and there's environmental disaster. There's loss of life for those not sealed in the 144,000, maybe some combination of both. The environment is devastated through this. A third of the earth, it says, is burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Um, and so there's this environmental disaster if you read this literally. Now, if you read it in a more figurative sense, you could say that hail was a sense of divine judgment when God used hail with the nation of, uh, of Egypt during the plagues. It was an understanding of his judgment. It was a wake-up call. That also was literal, though. It was like literal hail that fell. So, uh, But even if you just look at it metaphorically, uh, it's divine judgment. Fire would be maybe better translated lightning, and so lightning is also divine judgment, and so is blood, divine judgment. So you have this triple statement of judgment with hail, fire, and blood, right? When we talk about God within, within the book of Revelation, they say, holy, holy, holy. They're going to talk about humanity without Christ, and they're going to say, whoa, 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 which you could just say doomed, doomed, doomed would be another way to say that. And so when this triple statement of the same thing is made, it's like, it's here, it's happening. It's imminent. It's real. Okay? And so you could read it in a figurative sense in that way. Uh, the earth, we see that there's a global devastation uh, seen clearly as God's judgment on the whole sinful world. Um, trees are often used as sources of life, and so a third of the trees are lost. And so the, the source of, 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 uh, of life, of construction, these different things are lost. It says all the green grass is burned up. Um, before the Babylonians took Jerusalem, uh, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 14.5, he says, Even the doe in the field gives birth and abandons her fawn, since there is no grass. And so the idea of the earth being burned, the trees being burned, the grass being lost, uh, probably what John is really trying to do, and what God is showing him, is the goal is to remind the reader of the judgment of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and say it will be like that, but much, much worse and not just in one geographic location, but worldwide. And so this is a time of God's judgment on the whole earth. Very similar to the way that he judged his, his, his own nation as they sought false gods and lived their life without him and lived an unrepentant lifestyle. He judged that nation in a similar way. God's going to judge the whole earth. And that's what that first trumpet reminds us of. 
The second trumpet in verse 8, an angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So the third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Uh, Revelation is one of these books where you read different commentaries, and, and you could, you could you know, read ten commentaries, and you could get ten different answers. Um, and so some people look at this, and they think it's a meteor. Some people see this as a volcanic eruption, this mountain ablaze with fire hurled into the sea. Sounds like a volcano, right? I think that's the one that makes the most sense. Uh, historically, Mount Vesuvius goes off, right? And the, the island is lost, and then and there's actually historians that recorded because of that. There were earthquakes and different things, and the sea actually receded in certain parts, and there were animals, sea animals, that were left on the dry land to die. Um, so we have historical accounts of things like that happening. I think that's the picture that's being given to us, is a volcanic eruption that causes uh, the seas to, or multiple volcanic eruptions that cause the seas to sort of lose their place, and they become blood. That sounds a lot like one of the plagues, right? The Nile turned to blood. Um, and then the living creatures of the sea dying, and the ship being destroyed. Um, if you view it literally, then the seas and the human ability to travel and fish are seriously hindered. As you go through this, um, commerce, the economy, and people's ability to produce food is hit in all of these. Okay, And so what's happening as you go through this is that people are losing the things that they would put their trust in. Over and over and over again, as God's wrath is poured out, the things that people would put their trust in other than him, they're losing those things. Okay, And so if you look at it in a symbolic sense, um, another view is that the mountain symbolizes a powerful nation falling on other Gentile nations. Uh, the sea being used of Gentile nations many times throughout the scriptures, bringing devastation or blood on those nations by destroying their, their commerce, their ships. And so economic growth and food, food productivity are hit really hard here. Uh, we're reminded of the plagues of Egypt in this, in this passage here as well. And uh, what, what God did in each of those plagues with Egypt is he brought a plague that would counteract one of their false gods and cause them to lose economic growth. And so what was Egypt known for? They're the most powerful nation in the world, and they're known for their deities that bring that power, right? So they worship false gods. They believe that those false gods then brought that prosperity. And with each of the plagues, God does something that takes on the false god and their sense of prosperity. He takes those away. And so the little g gods of Egypt are taken on and they lose. And so what God is doing here is probably something very similar. The little g gods are something that we trust to provide for us instead of God. Uh, and if you think about the land that we live in, we live in a land that has little g gods. We don't name them and build temples for them as they did in Egypt. Um, but wealth and prosperity, we, we look at those things for security. We look at our nation and the, the wealth and prosperity of our nation is really important. If you follow the stock market, Friday was a rough day for you. Um, and so th those things are really important. And so wealth and prosperity, we say that's our security rather than saying, no, Christ holds my future. He holds my present and he holds my future. He's dealt with my past. He's given me new life. And so he's our security. We live in a society that looks to entertainment for fulfillment. Right? Got to go. Got to go do this. Got to have that. Got to have you know five subscriptions on my TV and all the all the apps on my phone and right. Like just constantly distracted by the things that entertain us, so that we can have a false sense of fulfillment. Instead of saying, "God, your will is my fulfillment," 
right? Uh, God, I want, I want what you want. Your design is what's best. And anything that I would put in place of your design, it's a cheap substitute and it won't fulfill. And so we live in a land where sex, we look to sex for pleasure. We look to self-made personal, uh, you know, a, a self-made personal conception of who I am for identity instead of saying, God, who do you say that I am? We look to human wisdom for human flourishing instead of saying, God, your ways are best and your design is best. And so our wisdom is not your wisdom. And so, God, we want your ways and not our ways so that you can produce a life that is best for me and then I can bless others. And so all these things, they're cheap substitutes for the divine design that God gives us. And I think it's important to recognize that each and every one of us struggles with this. Uh, We struggle in one way or another of saying, God, your will is best. Your ways are best. Even when they're difficult, even when they're trying, your will and your ways are what's best. And what we have a tendency to do is one of two things. We look at God's design and we say, if I work it out in my own strength and my own ability, God, you'll owe me something. And when you owe me something, I expect you to deliver, right? And so that's not grace, That's saying, you know, like earning is the opposition of grace. Now, there's nothing wrong with effort. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. And so, God, I live my life in your will so that I can experience the blessing of you, not the blessing of stuff. The other thing that we might struggle with in our our pursuit of seeing obedience as good and best, obedience to God as good and best, is we may say, well, those things sound taxing. They sound difficult. It would be more fun if I determined what sexuality was. It would be more fun if I used the blessings of this life the way that I think are best instead of trusting them to you. It would be better, more pleasurable, more powerful, more whatever, if I determined for myself what these things are. Instead of saying, I actually find the greatest sense of fulfillment by doing what God calls me to do. Does that sound foreign to you? It shouldn't. If you're a Christian, the greatest sense of blessing... The greatest sense of fulfillment, of pleasure, of identity, of flourishing, all those things are things that you should go, God, my life is best when I'm obedient to your will and walk it out in your strength. But during the second trumpet, people continue to lose those things. The false things that we would give our lives to, they're taken away. And then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and a third of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. So that, excuse me, so many of the people died from the waters because they had made them bitter. And so this third trumpet, some people look at it as a meteor falling from the sky that causes the, the, the water to become bitter. Um, some people lose it, uh, view it as a demon that loses its access, a powerful demon that loses its access to heaven. Uh, The study of angelic and demonic beings, we don't have a time to to get into all of it. But we know from the scriptures that fallen angels still have access to heaven. But there will come a point where they lose access to heaven. They lose access to God's presence. Um, Some people view this as that. I think a meteor probably makes a little bit more sense. Um, From a strictly metaphorical standpoint, wormwood is a... A perennial herb that produces small yellow flowers and grows throughout the Mediterranean. It's very bitter and can produce hallucination, convulsion, and damage to the central nervous system. Um, So the idea here would be of people experiencing this bitterness. In the Old Testament, bitter water symbolized disobedience and bitterness towards God's judgment of that disobedience. So people are disobedient, they're unrepentant, they experience God's judgment, and they say, what right do you have 
They're bitter towards God. Okay, And so the people are experiencing God's judgment and they continue to look at him in a sense of what right do you have to judge my life? Um, and so they, they experience this bitterness. I think it's important to contrast these statements to, to what Jesus says in John chapter 4 at the woman of the well. The story where this woman, she's at the well, Jesus is there, and she, she, Jesus asks her for a drink of water, and um, she asks him a question. Then he says, if you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. And everyone who drinks from this water will... Get everyone who drinks from this water, from the well, will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. And so again, it makes us question, where are we going to have our souls satisfied? Is the satisfaction of your soul in the things that you can get from this world? Um, is, it, is it in the, the, the things that you can acquire or, or taste or the false gods that you can worship? Or is the satisfaction of your soul found in Christ? I think it's a question we should ask ourselves with that trumpet. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck, verse 12. A third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of all of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light and also a third of the night. If you look at the, the scripture here as literal, uh, then you have to imagine volcanoes erupting and meteors falling to understand the disturbance of the light from the heavens. Um, what was it, Mount St. Helens up in Washington that went off in, in the, the mid-80s? I remember as a kid, the sky was not normal, right? And so uh, if you can imagine volcanoes going off and you're not seeing the light from the heavens properly and that kind of thing. Um, if you look at this as metaphorical, you could view the sun, the moon, and the stars as metaphors for political leaders who fall from power as strong as a stronger power unseats them. Um, either way, if you look at this, uh, the Antichrist uh, or the spirit of the Antichrist, it promises you peace in life but brings subjugation and powerlessness. Uh, so if we look at these things as future events, we see that there's a, a leader who will arise, a political leader, and he's actually able to unite all of the nations under the world under his leadership. Isaiah talks about this person being somebody that goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he actually he sets himself up as God and people look to this person and they say he has everything. He's united all the people of the earth. We're all on the same page. He's going to finally bless us and everything that we've ever wanted, world peace is going to take place. And then he doesn't bring that. Because that's something that can only be found in Christ. And so the Antichrist, or the spirit of the Antichrist, what it does is it promises you peace and life, but it brings you subjection and powerlessness. Every time that you give yourself to something that is other than Christ, right? You don't just give yourself to, to a, a little G false god because you think it's going to harm you, right? No one says, this would be terrible for me if I did it. I'm going to go ahead and do it. We think that in that thing, or uh, that little G god, we're going to find life. It's actually going to bring us the peace that we're looking for. It's going to bring us the life that we're looking for. It's going to bring me a sense of fulfillment. It's going to numb the pain that I feel. Whatever it is, we turn ourselves to this little G-God thinking it's going to satisfy, but in the end, it brings powerlessness and it owns you. And if you know sin in your life, you know that's what sin does. It makes you powerless and it owns you. You live your life for the next time you can do it. You're chained to it. But the beauty of Christ is he, he frees us from that. He's the only one that can end the bondage. You could try and end the bondage in your own strength. You might even have a little bit of success. But the only one who can free you from it eternally is Christ. And he offers you that. 
And so you have these four, first four of the trumpets, and really what they're calling us to do is ask, ask ourselves a question, who is the center of my life? Who or what is the center of my life? Is, is Jesus, is he truly the center of my life, or do I give myself to little g, false gods that I think could fulfill me but never will? And they also tell us that when God's judgment is brought upon the earth, all those cheap substitutes will be taken away. Um, Chip Ingram is a guy I love to listen to. He says that hell is a place where there's no Coors Light or football. All the distractions are gone. You're just left with the emptiness of yourself. You're left with that unfillable hole that you could just never, you could never be satisfied until you turn yourself to Christ. And hell is a place where all the cheap substitutes are gone and all you feel is emptiness. And so what are you filling yourself with? Will it last? That's what those trumpets are made to cause us to ask. Cause us to ask. That's what they want us to ask. Verse 13, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. And so there's a warning before the final three trumpets. The first four trumpets end with a cry from the skies of a triple woe. I talked about this early. God is described as holy, holy, holy. People without him are described as woe, 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 or doomed, doomed, doomed. The message is overwhelming, impending doom. To the Jewish reader, uh, the eagle would be a reminder of God's protection and care of impending disaster at the hands of warriors and about, uh, or of the prideful about to fall. All three could apply to this passage as God warns the sealed 144,000. He tells them for this protection that these things are coming. It would also strike fear into the prideful who reject God with their certain ruin. The first four trumpets, uh, they affect the environment of the earth. The final three will directly impact those on the earth during the Great Tribulation. And so we'll, we'll look at those next week in chapter 9. Uh, final thoughts for you here. The prophetic passages about God's righteous judgment of sin must be balanced with the truth of God's kindness, restraint, and patience, all given so that we would come to repentance. Uh, you have to understand that God is righteous. He is holy. He will judge. He will avenge. And he will set the wrongs right. He'll bring justice. But he also does not want to, to experience his wrath. And so one of, the, one of the other things that God does for us in Christ is he removes that justice from falling on us and he puts it on his son. So it's God's kindness that leads us to change our mind, trust Jesus as our Savior, and follow him as our Lord. The other thing is we must also say that God's current restraint of sin, if you read 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 there, it talks about how God is currently restraining sin. Romans chapter 1 and 2 actually tell us that God is restraining sin through his law being written on our hearts, through the way that he interacts with our conscience, and through government. Um, and we often overlook that blessing. The world could be much worse than it is. Uh, if God left us only to our own devices, this place is going to get worse, not better. Uh, the thought of him not holding all things together is entirely dreadful. Uh, again, Revelation leaves us in awe of Jesus. As we look at Jesus, he is both strong and kind. He is both the judge and the scapegoat. He has every right to sentence us to eternity without him, yet he wishes that all would come to repentance. 
The other thing about God is he takes no delight in the death of those who are still condemned by their sin, but it does everything required for us to possess eternal life in his name. And so I'll remind you of the verses there in Revelation chapter 5. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you have saved us from the consequences of sin. Um, I pray that each one of us here would remember that the course of our lives without you was disobedient, sinful, and seeking our will above yours. We call that sin. The result of our sin was that we harmed ourselves and we harmed others around us. And all the negative that we experience in this life is because of sin. We thank you that you will judge it, that you will remove it. Most of all, God, I thank you that you've judged it and you've removed it from me. When your son Jesus went to the cross, my sin was judged and it was removed from my account. I didn't earn it. I certainly don't deserve it. But because of your great love, you have taken away my sin. And in place of my sin, you have actually substituted your son Jesus' righteousness. All of his goodness, all of his justice, all of his mercy, all of his love, all of who you are, God. You've actually put it over who I am. And you, you now see me in this new way. It's truly unbelievable. And so, God, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for who you are. And we do say... Worthy is your son Jesus, the lamb who was slaughtered, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We praise these things in Jesus' name and we worship you right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.